0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at Bethelpbc.us. I read to you this morning from the 12th chapter of the Prophecy of Jeremiah, and the 5th verse. If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? and if in the land of peace wherein thou trustest they wearied thee then how wilt thou do in the swelling of the jordan when god called a man to be a prophet he did not set that man up for a life of luxury it was not a promotion the fact is the very opposite is often true prophets were seldom popular figures Elijah was blamed for the three-and-a-half-year drought. While God hid him from physical retribution during that period, he became known as the man that troubled Israel. Ezekiel was called to model his own message of God's judgment on the nation's sins by laying on his left side for 390 days and then turning and laying on his right side for 40 days. And perhaps the most shocking example of a prophet that was called to be an object lesson of the prophetic message that he brought to the people was Hosea, who was told by God to go marry an adulterous woman named Gomer. God told him to remain true to her, even though she wasn't to him, and even to go so far as to redeem her from the auction block after her repeated infidelities as a real-life example of God's covenant faithfulness to his adulterous bride, the nation of Israel, I dare say that must have been a tremendous burden to bear. Prophets were often called to model the message that they preached. To be a prophet was not an easy task. Jeremiah was no different. His call to the ministry is recorded in the first chapter, and it is generally agreed upon by Bible students that Jeremiah was called to be a prophet at the young, tender age of 13. And he was told in chapter 1, verse 10, not to be afraid of the people's faces, but to be courageous, because God says, I have ordained thee to tear down, to pull down, to throw down, and to destroy. And to build and to plant. Notice four negative terms, two positive terms. The majority of your ministry, Jeremiah, is going to be negative. I have to tell you, I don't like it when I feel burdened to preach a message from time to time that will challenge the Lord's people. I'd much rather preach about grace. Much rather preach about the love of God. I'm happier to tell people what great things the Lord's done for them. But periodically, if we're going to be faithful to the Lord, we have to bring a message that challenges and corrects. Well, notice Jeremiah's ministry, the bulk of it was to be negative, to pull down, to throw down, to tear down, to destroy. You know, before you can build a house, you have to excavate the property. You have to tear down existing structures and then rebuild And Jeremiah, your ministry, God says, is not going to be real easy. Then to build and to plant, there's the positive. But most of your labors will be negative. Chapters 2 through 10, that's his call to the ministry in chapter 1 of Jeremiah. Chapters 2 through 10 records a series of prophecies of coming judgment in which the young 13-year-old preacher began to preach that judgment day is coming. And by chapter 11, there's a death threat made against this teenager. They didn't like what he was saying. Chapter 11, verse 18, it says, The Lord hath given me knowledge of it, and I know it. He said, I was like a lamb or as an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. Verse 21 says, therefore, thus saith the Lord of the men of Anathoth that seek thy life. There's a death threat made against him. Can you imagine a boy preacher who preaches his first few messages and suddenly he's under threat of his life? I don't think I'd want to sign up for that job, would you? And interestingly, the men who threaten his life are his own family, the men of Anathoth. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that was Jeremiah's city. Anathoth was a priest's city. The Levites had settled there. And God says, the men of Anathoth that seek thy life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord that thou die not by our hand. God says, Jeremiah, you're under threat for your life, and that from your own family, your own kindred. I'll tell you, my friends, that must have been a heavy burden for Jeremiah to bear. I want you to notice now as we come to the passage that we look at as a text this morning, the prophet's perplexity, and then we'll talk about the Lord's answer. The prophet's perplexity is in the first four verses of chapter 12. Here's his prayer to God. Notice how confused and perplexed he is. He says, righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Now, I like the way he begins his prayer. He says, Lord, I know that thou art righteous. And by the way, that's something all of us need to know. God never does anything wrong. He's always right. The root of the word righteous is the word right, R-I-G-H-T. Deuteronomy 32, four says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and R-I-G-H-T. Right is he. God is always right. Even though we don't understand what he's doing, we can mark it down. He's right. Righteous art thou, Lord. I know you've never done anything unequitable or wrong. God is righteous. But I don't understand how it fleshes out. That's what he's saying. Lord, righteous art thou, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. The prophet says, Lord, I have some questions about how the scales balance. I know that thou art righteous, but I need to... Ask a few questions. And by the way, you can go to God with your confusion, your perplexity, your concerns, and he doesn't feel threatened by it. He doesn't feel challenged by it. God is always glad to receive his children's approach and their questions. Whatever questions you might have today, you can take it to the Lord in prayer. That's what Jeremiah, the young 13-year-old boy, does after preaching his first few sermons. And suddenly he's under threat for his life from his own family. (laughs) He says, Lord, I, I need a little help here. And I'm having difficulty understanding what's going on. Lord, I know you're righteous, but yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Now, what he's struggling with here is the injustice he sees in the world. Listen to him. Wherefore, doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore, are all they happy that deal very treacherously? He's struggling with the problem of injustice. Have you ever done that? You ever looked around and it seemed that those who don't fear him, worship him, serve him are prospering while nice guys always finish last. (laughs) You ever felt like that? It's the same problem that Job struggled with in Job chapter 21, verse 7. Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power. Their seed is established in their sight with them and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is there the rod of God upon them. Their bull gendereth and faileth not, their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock, their children dance, they take the timbrel and harp, and rejoice at the sound of the organ, they spend their days in wealth, and in a moment go down to the grave, yet they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways, what is the Almighty, that we should serve him." He says, Lord, now, why do they seem to have life so easy and I have it so hard? It's not that these Bible characters resent other people's prosperity. That would be a bad attitude, wouldn't it? But it's that they are struggling with the sense that the scales don't balance. Here I am trying to serve the Lord, do right, behave myself like I should, and yet it seems I have trouble. You see, Jeremiah was a godly man. God called him to be a prophet. And he's trying to tell the message of God, and what does he have to show for it but a thread on his life? And he says, Lord, it just doesn't seem to balance. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper, and they're happy that deal treacherously? Thou hast planted them, and they've taken root. They grow and bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth, yet far from their reins. Lord, it's evident that they talk a good game, but their hearts are not sincere. Listen to verse 3, but thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. He says, Lord, you know me. You know through and through what kind of person I am. And Lord, I'm struggling to understand. The prophet's perplexity. This is the very same issue that Asaph struggled with in the 73rd Psalm when he says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. I was standing on a banana peel of a bad attitude. He says, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, yet I am troubled and afflicted every day. The problem of injustice. Have you ever looked around at the world around you and wondered why does evil prosper? Why do they seem to have the upper hand? Why do the bad guys seem to be in control? Why do people that do not seem to fear God or respect the word of God or the people of God that aren't concerned for the gospel of Christ or the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet they flaunt their immorality and they are blasphemous in their attitudes, and yet they seem to carry the day while the godly are struggling and persecuted? Do you ever struggle with a sense of injustice? I have to tell you I do I wonder why is truth on the scaffold teetering and tottering and wrong is on the throne carrying the day that's what Jeremiah is facing here so he asked the Lord in verse 4 how long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell therein Lord our nation is in crisis The beasts are consumed and the birds because they said he shall not see our last end. They are completely reckless as they move forward with abandon in their ungodly pursuits. I want you to notice now the Lord's answer. I expect God to say, bless your heart. I understand how you feel. Don't be impatient with me. I'll get it worked out in time. Jeremiah, I know that things don't seem to balance right now, and it seems that the wicked have the upper hand, and you're trying to do right, and you're being threatened for your life. Jeremiah, just be patient with me. I'll get it sorted out in time. That's what I expect. Listen to how the Lord responds, though. It's a surprising and shocking answer. If thou hast run with the footman, And they have wearied thee, then how shalt thou contend with horses? Well, and if in the land of peace they wearied thee, then what wilt thou do in the swelling of the Jordan? This is a shocking answer because we expect the Lord again to encourage him by some sympathetic word, by some promise, or by some special dispensation of providence. Or some strong fellow believer that comes to his side to assist him in his hour of need, God can and does encourage us in all of those ways. Instead, God encourages him on this occasion in a very surprising way by reproving him for his small strength. Somebody says this morning, preacher, I don't think that's much of an encouragement to challenge him for his small strength. But I dare say, dear friends, that everything of value in our lives comes at a cost of struggle and difficulty. Notice the difference in the text between two ideas, calm and crisis. If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how shalt thou contend with horses? Calm or relative calm, run with the footman like marching in double time in basic training or boot camp. If you've ever seen a group of recruits and they're on one of these long rucksack marches, six mile march, you know, and at a certain point, the drill instructor says double time and they go from marching into twice as fast, double time jogging, you know, that's running with the footman. You see, if you in training have been wearied, what will you do in the time of battle? What God is saying to Jeremiah here doesn't seem like an encouragement on the surface, but it's very needful in each of our lives. And it is simply this, dear friends, that God prepares us through the little trials of today for greater service tomorrow. And it's a principle that you could probably recognize in your own experience. I see it in mine. And it's the way parents train children You know, you don't immediately take your child out and say, let's compete this coming Saturday in an Ironman triathlon. But you teach the child, first of all, to walk, right? From crawling to walking and then to taking more and more responsibility. But in time, you see, through the little challenges of growth and development, the child grows in strength to the point that they can then be productive and do things that are impressive to the rest of us. My beloved, may I say that God knows how much pressure to exert on each one of us at each level or stage of spiritual development. He knows what you can handle today that maybe you couldn't have handled 10 years ago or 25 years ago. And the past trials that we've been through are meant to prepare us for greater usefulness in his service in the future. If thou has run with the footmen and they wearied thee, that's a time of relative calm. Here comes the time of Christ, then how shalt thou contend with horses when the thundering hoofbeats of the enemy come rushing through the city, if you 've been discouraged and depressed in basic training and wanted to quit and you have thrown in the towel, then what will you do when the real battle comes? and if in the land of peace, wherein they weary thee that is in the calm of a meadow or a level terrain, and you 've been Oh, these problems are just too much. I think I'm going to quit. Then what will you do, he says, when the Jordan overflows its banks and the raging river easily sweeps you off your feet with its dangerous current, the crisis of that event. In other words, the contrast in the text is the contrast between calm and crisis. Alexander McLaren In his comments on this verse says, We all have had the experience of how in our lives there are long stretches of uneventful days and then suddenly, without warning, some crisis has sprung on us, which demands quite a different order of qualities to cope with it. Our typhoons generally come without any warning from a falling barometer. That's certainly true. You say, my life's going along just ordinary, and, you know, the pace is easy, and I'm just so thankful the sun is shining, and then suddenly it's hurricane season, and it's time to batten the hatches and to tie everything down. And you say, I wish that it could be like it was last week or two weeks ago, and why does crisis come and interrupt the calm of my life? May I say that's a metaphor for your entire lives There's not a one of us, my friends, who won't see our peace and calm and relative quiet interrupted from time to time by a time of emergency, a time of crisis, when the thundering hoofbeats of the enemy come rushing through town. That's true in our individual lives. It's true in our homes. It's true in our churches. It's true in our nation. Do you know what time it is in human history? You know, the Bible says, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Talks about Esther, who came to the kingdom for such a time as this. There are special seasons in our lives that call for greater strength. And I think it's helpful for us to learn to look at the way that God in his providence deals with us in this sense that he's training us right now for battles to come tomorrow. What we're talking about this morning is the sanctifying value of pressure and trial in our lives. Often thought of a passage in Zechariah 13, verse 8, where it says, It shall come to pass that two parts in the land shall be cut off and die, and a third part shall remain. God says, I'm going to judge two parts, I'm going to save a remnant. One third of the people will remain. And you say, Well, they're home free. They've escaped judgment. And God says in the next verse, And the third part I will bring through the fire. (laughs) We believe in salvation by grace. We believe in salvation by the finished work of Jesus Christ, but this text teaches salvation by fire. The third part I'll bring through the fire, sanctification, if I could say it like that. God perfects you. He grows us by putting us under measured pressure. The key word there is measured from time to time. You know, if a wise parent does not exert his full strength upon a child, either physically or Psychologically, in training that child, you know that a child at certain stages is able to handle things that they can't at earlier times in their development. And I say again this morning that the little struggles we're called to endure today are preparations for service tomorrow. It's necessary, Jeremiah, God says, I know that you're feeling weak right now and you're afraid, your life is under threat, but God says, greater trials are ahead of you. And the fact is, they were. For this young 13-year-old boy who starts his ministry with a thread on his life, I can't imagine. You talk about ready to quit, discouragement. This young boy soon will be placed in the stocks, his hands and his feet bound in the stocks for a period of time. And then he will be placed in a, like a living grave. It, it's a dungeon in which the bottom is full of muck. And he begins to sink like a sinkhole in the mire up to his knees. I mean, he's, he's standing there in mire, sinking to his knees, and he is all alone. And he would have probably died there had it not been for an Ethiopian man that had mercy on him. And came and brought him bread and water to sustain him and eventually effected his release It's no wonder that when you get to the 20th chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, Lord, I resign. I'm going to turn in my prophet's card. He says, I said, I will not speak in thy name anymore. He's ready to just quit. Have you ever reached the point in your life where you say, okay, that's it. I quit. I'm so over it. I'm done with it all. I quit. Jeremiah said, I'm just going to quit preaching. I said I will not speak any more in his name. But then he says, Lord, you have uh, tricked me. You've deceived me. He, he uses that word, O oh, Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. That's Jeremiah chapter 20. Do you know what he means? He means, Lord, you don't fight fairly. <laughs> For thou hast put thy word in my heart, and it's in my bones like fire. And he said, I was weary with forbearing. He quit. He turned in his prophet's cart. He said, Lord, here, here you go. Here's my card. You can have it back. I quit. But he said, The longer I stayed in retirement, the more upset and frustrated I became. I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay, for I heard the defaming of many on every side. He said, I heard preachers down the street preaching a God that was weak and couldn't do what he wanted to do, and that man had to help him. He said, I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. And he said, I couldn't stop preaching. I had to tell the truth. Jeremiah was a man of conviction. He wasn't in the prophetic ministry just for a paycheck. He wasn't doing this just to be able to get out of honest work, you know, to earn a living without having to work like the rest of the people. He was a man of conviction. He felt it, he believed it. And he couldn't bear the thought that God was dishonored by false teaching. So he says, Lord, you don't fight fairly. I want to quit, but you won't even let me quit. <laughs> you put it in my, inside of me like a fire in my bones. My beloved Jeremiah had more problems than I've ever had in my entire life in just a few years in his ministry. And I wonder if this is one reason that when the question was asked in the New Testament, whom do men say that I the Son of Man am, that one of the answers was Jeremiah's or one of the other prophets. Because Jesus was a man of sorrows, and Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Here's a man who actually cared about the service of God, who actually cared about the people of God. He didn't just use them as a stepping stone for his own life of ease and luxury. He didn't simply see his role as a prophet as an opportunity for him to uh, pad his own pockets. His motives were sincere and genuine. And the Lord answers him and says, Jeremiah, you need to go through the fire because more severe trials are coming in the future. You say, Brother Mike, just a minute. You're not encouraging me today because I am here feeling like I'm sinking in the mire myself. And everything is going wrong, and I have problem after problem. The burdens I've been called to bear are heavy. How can I keep going? And for you to say that worse troubles are coming down the line just doesn't encourage me very much. I I understand. I understand. But let's be honest about it. If you were to take a little child and you were to tell them, it's important for you to, to learn the lessons right now because you're going to need them later down the line. You need to learn to pick up after yourself the little child says, but it's just too much. I can't do it. My toys, I just can't get them up. And you say, no, I'll show you how. I'll help you. You're going to work with me, but we're going to work together. But you need to learn to be responsible because there's coming a day when I won't be here to help you. And Your alarm clock will go off at six o'clock in the morning and you'll have to get up and go to work. And I won't be there to say, get up, get up, come on, rise and shine. But you'll have to be a self-starter you see you'll have to be self-disciplined the purpose of discipline right now from me is that you will learn self-discipline in your life there was a time when you'll have to go to work and you'll have to work from eight to five you say I couldn't stay in one place for eight hours I couldn't work in that monotonous job but you see sometimes my friends the monotony of sitting in a classroom and learning algebra which you say what good will this do me in life that's training you For the responsibilities of tomorrow. Here's what I'm saying. The evil day is coming. Ephesians chapter 6 says, put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand, watch this, in the evil day. Do you know what that means? You say, well, Brother Goins, every day is an evil day. I understand. Because we're living in a world that's under the curse of sin. it's true that every day has its own problems and challenges and pressures. But that language, the evil day, suggests that there is a time of crisis in every one of our lives. And there will probably be more than one. Now, I think about my life. I can look back and see that I've had times of personal crisis. And I can see how that God in his providence prepared me in the past for that crisis that came. And though I thought it would be the end of me and I couldn't get through it, looking back today with 2020 hindsight, I can see how it helped me. It made me stronger. You know, the most valuable lessons I've ever learned in my life were learned in the furnace of affliction. It's not while I was on the mountaintop and everything was going well, I've learned, my beloved, in the furnace of of trial and affliction, the most valuable things I've ever learned. And Jeremiah would face even more severe trials than this one. And God says, Jeremiah, if you're ready to quit right now, after just getting started. And I know it's serious. Your family's wanting to kill you. They're embarrassed by you. Yet, Jeremiah, the thundering hoofbeats of the enemy are coming tomorrow. You need to toughen up. Think about a soldier in basic training. How many young men are told to leave your smartphone at home and leave your Xbox and your Minecraft and your whatever else they use today. Leave all that at home. No more social media. You're coming to boot camp or to basic training. And for the first 10 days, they put you in a room and you're just staring at the wall and you're bored to tears. You say, oh, my mama. And they say, sorry, I'm your mama now. Right? But you see, they're breaking them down so they can rebuild them because they're making soldiers. They're making men out of them. Isn't that right? We're living in a world, my beloved, in which masculinity the virtues of manhood, of old-fashioned, you know, the the Justin Bieber's have replaced the John Waynes. We're living in a world where we're looking for kinder and gentler men. And I'm telling you, my beloved, that the Bible tells us that that there is something to be said from a masculine faith. The old virtues of courage and conviction and tenacity, perseverance, keeping on, keeping on, not giving up, not giving in, not giving out bearing the sweat and toil of the day, the willingness to be true to a cause to the very end. Those virtues, my friends, are increasingly rare in our modern world. When the Bible says, quit you like men to Christian people, it's talking to the sisters too. And you sisters need to be masculine in this regard, to be true to the Lord and committed to him because the hour of testing is coming. The hour of trial in each of our lives will come. Now, some of you have already been through it, and you say, I just barely survived that. I don't want another one. And God, in his mercy, knows what you can handle. (laughs) And he's faithful to give you the resources you need at that hour of crisis. But what I'm saying, dear friends, is that this lesson, the swelling of the Jordan, needs to be learned by each of us. You look at Abraham's trials, his three trials. His first trial was not to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and slay him. He couldn't have handled that trial as a young man. His first trial was leave home. Get thee out of thy country from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. He didn't tell him where he was going, but he had to live by faith. And God led him each step of the way, did he not? That was his first trial. His second trial was to wait for 25 years for a promise to be fulfilled. That was a severe trial. But it wasn't until he had survived those trials and learned the lessons from them that God said, now take your son, your only son, up on top of Mount Moriah. God knew how to prepare him for that severest and sorest trial of his life. I learned early on through athletics and through chopping cotton in the summertime with my five female cousins. Uh, I learned through, through uh, spending a few weeks in the summer on a farm in Floydada, Texas, and walking those long cotton rows, 237 miles long one way, saying you can get a drink of water when you, when you make a round. You know, you go 237 miles that way and then 237 miles back, then you can have a sip of water. No shade in West Texas. I learned thinking that I just can't do it. You know, it's hot, it was miserable, it was uncomfortable. But you know what, what I thought would be the death of me actually helped to shape me and train me and mature me and grow me for a stick to it attitude as I got older. I learned that in athletics. In the sixth grade, I had a coach that looked like he had never pumped any iron or done any work in his whole life, but he was out there and he'd look at his stopwatch as we ran laps around the track, and he'd say, ha ha ha, hurts so good, doesn't it, Goins? Hurts so good. I thought, man, I can't stand that coach. You know, I'd make another lap, he'd say, does it, oh, it hurts so good. Do you know what he was doing? He was training me. He was teaching me. I needed to be brought to the point that I thought I couldn't take another step. I needed the pressure at that point. And it wasn't cruel and unusual punishment. I thought it was. But it was helping me to grow up to be manly. It was training me. I think we would all agree, and I'm not scolding anybody here this morning, that we've become especially soft in our pampered society. I mean I I can't live without air conditioning. I can't live without heat. Well, I know it could be dangerous. I can't live without three cars in the garage. (laughs) You know. know. Gotta have my microwave, I've gotta have my cable with twelve hundred channels or whatever it is. Now I'm not touting the benefits of asceticism. I'm not trying to say it's more godly to do without. You know, that's what the ascetics, that's what the monks used to say, that the more you deny yourself pleasure and privilege, the holier you are. That's not true. No, my friend, riches should not control us, but we should see them as blessings from God. I'm thankful to live a life of comfort. And I wouldn't trade the modern world for a previous generation uh, for anything as far as I wouldn't want to lose my microwave or my transportation Or my technology or the amenities that I enjoy in life. But I'm telling you, dear friends, if it happened, I think I could survive. How about you? If it ever came that we didn't have electricity, that we didn't have the opportunity to move around freely like we do today, if it ever came that we were told you can't meet together, that you can't transact business like you once did, if it ever happened, that we lost the freedoms that we enjoy today. And that could happen in our modern world. My beloved, could you keep going? Could you survive? Could it be that God is using present circumstances through government efforts to control our lives and to restrict our freedoms and limit us under threat of disease or whatever? Could it be that we are in training for a future time in which we will need to be more tenacious, more courageous, more wise, that we will have to draw from the past and say, I learned that God can be trusted to carry me through what I thought was a very severe trial, but now looking back in comparison to what I'm going through right now, I could see that it wasn't nearly as intense as this one, but yet God took care of me and I'm trusting him to take care of me now. What an important lesson this is, my beloved. Nothing valuable or worthwhile in life is achieved without struggle. In December of 1776, Thomas Paine wrote The American Crisis as he traveled as a journalistic embed with George Washington's army. The colonists were suffering one defeat after another at the hands of the British, and it appeared that the British army was on the verge of victory. The quest for independence looked very grim. In just four months, Washington's army had suffered severe casualties. It had shrunk from 23,000 men to a mere 5,000 soldiers. And to rally the patriots forward, lest they surrender in discouragement, Thomas Paine wrote these words. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Mr. Payne's words remind us that anything worthwhile requires us to confront the hard times with sacrifice and perseverance. And it wasn't long before General Washington and his men crossed the Delaware and fought to victory at Trenton and Princeton, And turned the tide of the war in favor of the Continental Army and independence that they had declared on July 4th was ultimately realized as the British Army was defeated. If you'll notice in our text the question is not what shall you do in the swelling of the Jordan it is how wilt thou do that is how Can you survive in a time of crisis? And I think we could summarize what we've tried to say this morning in four points. The first thing that we can do to survive a time of crisis is rediscover a masculine faith. When Latimer and Ridley were burned at the stake in Smithfield, England in 1555 A.D. under religious persecution, Latimer turned to Ridley and he said, Play the man, Ridley. and Thus he steeled the courage of his comrade. Not to give up in discouragement. May I say, dear friends, we need a Latimer today to say to you and me, play the man, Christian. That's what Ephesians 6.10 means when it says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. What he's saying is toughen up. Be strong. Get tough. Don't be a wimp. But... Toughen up in the Lord, not in yourself. You say, okay, I can handle whatever comes my way. It doesn't take many crises to rush us off our feet and make us realize just how vulnerable and weak we really are in and of ourselves. But my beloved, our strength is in the Lord. Do you know that today? Do you know that the Lord is there for you and you can be strong in the power of his might, not in your own strength, but in the Lord's strength? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, he says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, a soldier cannot expect easy treatment. He doesn't expect to be put up at the Radisson with room service and cable TV and a soft mattress and pillow. But he expects to endure hardship. That's the life of a soldier. He's going to have to sleep out on the hard ground under the stars. Exposed to the elements, eat sea rations. My friend's training boot camp is meant to prepare you for the real battle. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Abolition of Man some years ago, and one of the chapters in that book is entitled Men Without Chests. He's talking about men who are not able to handle life. They don't have the strength or resolve in here. Men without heart is what he's talking about. He's saying that many men have lost the courage to be leaders. You say, why would a woman be a judge in Israel? Deborah, you know, the book of Judges, Deborah, the judge. You say, why would a woman be a judge? Because the men were not tough enough to stand up and be counted. And May I say we're seeing a day to day when we need men to stand up and to speak up and to be confident in the Lord and courageous and not to be afraid of what people will think or how they might be persecuted for it. I saw a quote recently that said, Hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make soft men. And soft men make hard times. Just goes right in a circle, doesn't it? Hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make soft men. And soft men make hard times. My beloved, we've reached the point where we need strong men again to stand up I want to be that and you can be masculine without being toxic masculinity is not a matter of throwing your weight around ruling with your belly we're talking about men with chests not men with bellies not throwing your weight around but we're talking about men with conviction men with heart what we need today my friends is a masculine faith The second thing I would say is reorient your life if you're in a time of crisis around the priorities of your life. Nehemiah chapter 4 talks about a crisis when they were rebuilding the wall. The enemy said that as soon as you start building, we will be upon you and attack you. So he says, we set a watch against them day and night and we made our prayer to our God. And the people are discouraged. Nehemiah says, therefore, I set the people on the wall according to their families. Instead of a wife working over here and a husband over here and a child over here, he says, I said, all this family, you all work together. And he said, when the enemy comes, here's my message to you. Fight for your families and your brother. In other words, in a time of crisis, we need to go back to rediscover the real priority in life. You say, oh, I can't spend time on my boat now. It's a time of crisis. Now, what matters is your home, your family, your marriage, your children. That's what really matters, right? I hope that's true. You know, very few people come to the end of their life and say, you know, I wish I'd have spent more time at work. Most of the deathbed confessions I've heard say, I wish I'd have spent more time with my wife or my husband. Wish I'd spent more time with my children. Your families, that's the priority of life. Strong families make strong churches. Strong churches make a strong nation. And so it all goes back to the family. That's that's what matters. My friends, as long as we have each other, you know, it doesn't matter really what happens out there. So in a time of crisis, go back to basics, reorient your life around your life priorities, and then remember the sovereignty of God. How shall you do in the swelling of the Jordan? Rediscover a masculine faith, stand up, speak up, be strong in the Lord, gather around your families and what really matters in your life, and then never forget that God is sovereign. Psalm 31:15 says, my times are in thy hands. My good times and bad times, my happy times and sad times, my times of unemployment, my times of employment, my times of prosperity, my times of poverty, my times of popularity, my times of persecution. It's all in your hands, Lord. The outcome depends on the Lord. God is sovereign behind it all. He overrules it all and therefore whatever's happening we should say Lord it's in your hands and commit the outcome to the Lord. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. First Peter 2 23 when he suffered he threatened not but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. Lord it's in your hands. That's what he meant in the garden of Gethsemane not my will but thine be done. Thy will be done. He is trusting in the sovereignty of God. Finally, I would say this morning, how can you survive in a time of crisis? Rediscover a masculine faith. Reorient your life around the real priorities. Remember the sovereignty of God. And finally, refuse to give in to discouragement. 1 Peter 1.13 says, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought into you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My beloved, keep hoping all the way to the very end. Never quit hoping. Never give up. Winston Churchill was asked to deliver the commencement address at his alma mater once he had become prime minister and was a household word famous in England. And he went back to his school that he hadn't visited in many years, and they were so excited. And a capacity crowd was assembled to hear what the sage prime minister would say. I mean, he was known to be a great wit, a great mind. And they wondered what words of wisdom would drop from his lips. And Mr. Churchill got up and he looked over the crowd of people. And he said to a hushed crowd, these words, Never, 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 never never give up. He straightened his coat, stepped down, and sat down. That was the end of his speech. It's like all that wait for that. But what an important message. Never, never, never give up. Because Jeremiah 12, 15, from where we took our text says, it shall come to pass after I've plucked the people out, I will return and have compassion on them and will bring them again. The God of judgment is a God of mercy and a God of hope. So my friends, never give up. What is in store for us tomorrow? I don't know. I don't know for your life as an individual, for our church, for our families, for our nation. I don't know. But I know I'm not afraid because I trust in a sovereign God who loves me and who's promised that it will all be okay in the end, right? Whatever I'm called to endure right now, my friends, I'm going to keep hoping all the way to the end because. Just one glimpse of him in glory, with all the toils of life repay, And I'm going to try to remember by his grace that even though it be a cross that raiseth me, yet my goal in life is to be nearer my God to thee. May he use my trials to sanctify, to grow me, to make me stronger. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for you. Then when the swelling of the Jordan happens, you'll be able to stand it and survive because your trust is in the Lord your God.
1: Day by day. is a charge that on yourself in laid, as your days your strength shall be in may.
0: You're listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.